listening to the Alan Carter Show on Global News Radio 640 Toronto. Welcome to the program. Thank you so much for spending some time with me. We're going to do a quick checkup on what's going on in the federal campaign. Plus, we're going to take you to Washington, D.C. D.C., pardon me, Jackson Prosco, our global national correspondent. He's standing by with more on what's happening in the impeachment saga south of the border. Also coming up in the program, we're going to talk meat and this new study that has raised so many eyebrows about whether or not there is actually evidence, scientific evidence, that proves that eating meat, that having a meat-based diet, is actually bad for your health. All the vegans are up in arms. We're going to talk dentists, and we are going to talk China. China? Because that is a big deal today, and coming up in the program, I don't do this often, but we're giving stuff away. I feel like an FM radio jock now. We're giving stuff away. We have a free family pack to the RV show at the Toronto Congress Center. It goes from October 18th to the 20th. And we will have a skill testing question about China coming up in the program. Last night, I was pleased to moderate the all-candidates debate in Beaches East York. All the candidates were there with the exception of one, the conservative candidate. Did not show. Did not give a reason for not showing. Unfortunate, really, that the Conservatives have just given up in that riding. It obviously is a riding that switches between Liberal and NDP. It is a Liberal incumbent currently. And last night was great to be there and great to see people coming out and asking questions and trying to become informed. I will say one thing. There was a candidate from the PPC party there. And that, some of her statements, elicited the loudest boos and the most rustling of papers within the church. You don't hear a lot of booing in a United Church normally, but there was some last night when there was a suggestion that curbing immigration rates would actually help housing affordability. But let's get to the election coverage on the campaign trail And it's all foreign to me today because the Conservatives are pledging to decrease foreign aid spending by 25%. The plan includes cutting funding for countries they consider to be hostile regimes or if they have too much money to need the help. Speaking in Toronto, the Conservative leader said he would use the $1.5 billion in savings to pay for other policies in the Conservatives' yet-to-be-released platform. We're going to reprioritize foreign aid so that it is focused on countries in greatest need while using the savings to help Canadians like you get ahead. Second, we are going to reinvigorate our traditional allegiances with countries that share Canadian values. Third, we're going to reprioritize human rights in our international affairs and embrace new legal tools through which we can hold hostile regimes accountable. And fourth, we will depoliticize military procurement to prevent future partisan abuses. That is Andrew Scheer speaking this morning. The Conservatives, in case you're wondering, define middle and upper income countries as those with the Human Development Index above 0.6. That's a technical term, but I'll give you a couple of countries that actually qualify that are above that, so they would no longer receive aid from Canada if they already get it, and that would include Argentina, Barbados, and China. 
Scheer saying today that Tuesday's announcement would not affect groups receiving aid to provide abortion or maternal health services to women and girls abroad. Here is more of Scheer's press conference this morning. Prioritizing Canadians over foreign dictators in foreign aid, recommitting to our allies, putting human rights at the forefront of our global agenda, and taking the partisan politics out of military procurement. Those pillars will form the foundation of our conservative plan to reclaim Canadian leadership on the world stage. So while the Conservatives propose a cut of 25% in global aid, the Liberal platform says if re-elected, the party would increase Canada's international development assistance every year towards 2030, but doesn't actually put a number on that. Liberal leader Justin Trudeau in Toronto again says he will give municipalities the authority to ban handguns in their communities, and that stops well short of a national ban on handguns, something that doctors and other health professionals have called for. Trudeau making his announcement this morning after meeting a group of Toronto-area mayors to discuss rising gun violence. So why, Justin Trudeau, a piecemeal proposal and not a nationwide ban on handguns? Things we've heard clearly from uh, the mayors here, uh, and indeed mayors right across the country, is a desire to move forward on restrict and ban handguns within their communities. Uh, We recognize, as I said, Uh, that the GTA has uh, over 5 million people who could live uh, in municipalities where handguns are flat-out banned. Then there's this great moment following that question when reporter Katie Simpson from the CBC simply asks all the mayors who are standing right behind Trudeau to raise their hands if they would prefer to have a national handgun ban. Um, Could I get a show of hands here from mayors who would like a national ban? I can tell you I heard clearly from them that many of them want us and I want us to bring a national ban yes so all of the if you take a look behind you all those people mm-hmm. are saying national ban you heard it from the medical professionals so why not go that route uh, we are taking the strongest step uh, in uh, Canadian history to move forward on tougher gun legislation uh, we are moving forward uh, on a full-out ban on assault weapons And we're moving forward to empower municipalities across this country, cities big and small, to ban handguns uh, within their districts. Awkward moment there for Justin Trudeau, courtesy of Katie Simpson lowering the boom. Where do the Conservatives stand on this, you ask? Liberal, uh, sorry, leader Andrew Scheer is strongly against a handgun ban, arguing that it punishes lawful gun owners. The NDP stance, the party has not endorsed a national handgun ban, but has called for cities to be given the power to ban handguns like the Liberals. The NDP also wants to crack down on illegal guns and to combat smuggling. Let's move south of the border quickly. House Democrats are moving aggressively against Donald Trump and his lawyer, Rudy Giuliani, as part of their impeachment inquiry. Giuliani has been at the heart of Trump's efforts to get Ukraine to investigate his political rival, Joe Biden. On Monday, Democrats issuing a subpoena to the former New York mayor for text messages, phone records, other communications. To talk more about this and more developments south of the border in this ongoing drama, Jackson Prosco joins me now. Jackson. Well, good afternoon, Alan. What is going to happen throughout the course of the day? The flurry of developments late yesterday was just breathtaking. 
Yeah, and you get the sense we're uh, waiting for another day just like that today already. Secretary of State Mike Pompeo has come out and hinted that he's at least going to slow down, if not outwardly defy, the subpoena that he and the State Department received on Friday for the testimony of five State Department aides. So that's uh, some suggestion of early pushback from the White House. And at the same time, he's over in Italy right now, meeting with the Italian Prime Minister. And of course, last week we had Attorney General Bill Barr in Italy himself trying to drum up Italy's support and cooperation uh, for this investigation that the White House wants into the origins of the Mueller probe and the uh, surveillance of the Trump campaign going back to 2016. So all these sort of things are intersecting all at once, and they're all unfolding really, really quickly here. I did not have the Prime Minister of Australia in my on my scorecard of developments here. How, how is that playing into all of this? Yeah, so there was a report out late yesterday that Trump pressured the Australian Prime Minister to cooperate with his attorney general, Bill Barr, in this investigation of the origins of the the Mueller probe. Essentially what's going on here, Alan, is that Trump is still buying into these conspiracy theories that his campaign was illegally surveilled by the Obama administration, perhaps with the help of all these foreign governments. He's committed to this political conspiracy theory. He's now using the resources of the U.S. government and his own power as president to try and make that conspiracy theory a reality, essentially forcing U.S. allies to to cooperate with this investigation, try and dig up dirt so he can use that in 2020. While it's not unusual, according to the experts I've spoken to, for an attorney general to ask for foreign cooperation with a U.S. investigation, what is unusual is that he would do so with an investigation that so clearly has political implications for his boss, the President of the United States. There is obviously much consternation in the White House and uh, developments on the Democratic side, but give me the Republican base and their response. I noticed that Conrad Black, not that I would suggest he's <laughs> he's Republican base, but he did call it a giant nothing burger, and I'm wondering if that is resounding with Trump's base. No, I think actually what's alarming for Trump and the White House is the silence from average Republicans. So you're seeing the sort of usual suspect surrogates, a few White House officials, a couple of senators who are the most ardent defenders of the president. They're out there. They're in his corner. But average Republicans, the rank and file senators and members of Congress, they're staying silent. They're claiming they haven't read these whistleblower complaints, which is all of, what, nine pages long. Uh, they're, they're doing their best to avoid talking about this. And then you look at the polling, and it suggests that average Republicans voters are now starting to come on side with the idea of impeachment. Not in huge numbers, but it's not insignificant that the number of Republicans who support impeachment has doubled in the past week, that the overall number of Americans who support impeachment is now up to 47%. Those are not insignificant numbers at this point. Jackson Prosco, Global Nationals correspondent in Washington, D.C. Always great to have you on the program. Thank you so much. My pleasure. Welcome back to the program. In court today, the province's top court is set to hear an appeal dealing with the policing powers of Ontario's Animal Welfare Agency. In a lawsuit filed six years ago, the Ontario Landowners Association challenged the Ontario Society for the Prevention of Cruelty to Animals, the OSPCA. Their powers, they said, according to the lawsuit, were simply... Offside, they should not have the power to investigate offenses or to lay criminal charges. And in January, a lower court ruled that giving the OSPCA those powers was simply unconstitutional. 
and the judge gave the Ontario government a year to rewrite those laws. Today, in court, the appeal goes forward. So the question will be, will we have to rewrite those laws, or will that be overturned on appeal? We are going to stay on top of that story for you. Earlier in September, a dental hygienist, pardon me, in Ontario, who lost his license for treating his wife's teeth, is appealing to the public after losing his bid to have his punishment overturned. And here's where I get to earlier in September. That is when Ontario's divisional court released its decision to uphold the College of Dental Hygienists of Ontario's Discipline Committee's decision to revoke Alexander Tanas's license after he treated his wife's teeth. Now, in Ontario, it's considered professional misconduct if a dental hygienist has sexually abused a patient. According to the Regulated Health Professions Act, sexual abuse includes any sexual intercourse or other types of sexual relations. Consent is irrelevant, and a spouse is included in the definition of a patient. Tom Hayes is working on this story for Global News and joins me on the line. Hi, Tom. Hi, Alan. How are you doing? I'm good. What's the latest on uh, our friend, uh, the dental hygienist, and his bid to try to be reinstated? Well, you mentioned uh, the court ruling that upheld this decision, but it's it's a battle that's certainly far from over, especially when you speak with Alexandru uh, Tanase and, and his plight and, and his wife, uh, Sandy, as well, too. So where it stands right now is uh, he's had his license revoked. Uh, it's not a lifetime ban, but it's been revoked for five years. But uh, really, that could easily be a lifetime ban for him because it, it would be very difficult for him to go to wait five years, first of all, and then, and then to go back to this profession. Hasn't the college itself even admitted that its rule is not very well worded and, and is probably wrongheaded? Well, here's here's what the college is saying, and we just finished with uh, an interview with them, and we'll have the, we'll have this interview tonight at five thirty on Global News. But he, here's what they're saying: they recently uh, changed the rules when it came to dentists, so dentists are now allowed to treat their spouses. That they proposed that change, the Ontario government approved it. Now they've gone ahead and they've proposed the same change for a dental hygienist. But the Ontario government has not yet rubber-stamped it, has not approved it. So um, the subject here, Alex, he tells me that he believed that the law was changed and that when he treated his spouse, he didn't believe he was doing anything wrong at the time. He says he believed that the law had gone through and had changed because he was informed by a colleague that it had done so. So it's it's a bit of a mess for this fellow because uh, he's passionate about his job, uh, the reviews that he has from his patients are, are stellar. Uh, he, he's well-liked in his office in Guelph, where he works. But he, he's in a tough situation, and he's been without an income for a couple of years because this has been quite a process. Uh, and, you know, he's at the point where, where his wife and, and, and Alex himself are worried about just keeping their house at this point. Uh, now they're going to the, the Court of Appeals in Ontario. That's a big price tag as well, too. So it really is a mess for this guy. Do we have any sense when the province, as you might say, would rubber stamp this change? And then how would that retroactively apply to Alex? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, a good question. And I just asked that, too. And there's no word. I think that's that's what the, the college told me. There's no word back from the uh, Ministry of Health as to when this will even be reviewed 
uh, and uh, whether or not it'll be rubber stamped or approved, they don't know as well, too. They have made the application. They're waiting to hear back uh, about the process from, from the government. Tom Hayes is a global news reporter and is working on this story about the dental hygienist, and you can see his story on Global News at 5.30 and 6 tonight. Tom, thanks so much for being on the program. Okay, Alan, you're welcome. On Monday, there was a remarkable turnabout as an international collaboration of researchers produced a series of analysis concluding that the advice often given to limit the amount of red meat and processed meats that you consume because concerns that those foods are linked to heart disease, cancer, other ills, all of that, a bedrock of almost all dietary guidelines, it turns out it's not backed by good scientific evidence. If there are health benefits from eating less beef and pork, they are small, the researchers concluded. Indeed, the advantages are so faint that they can barely be discerned, and only when you look at very large populations and are not sufficient to actually tell people to go ahead and change your meat-eating habits. Jaw-dropping. Their conclusions were swiftly attacked by a group of prominent U.S. scientists who took an unusual step of trying to actually stop the publication of this research until the criticisms were addressed. This new work doesn't say that red meat and processed meats like hot dogs and bacon are healthy or that you should eat more of them. That's that's not what it says. The reviews of past studies generally support the ties to cancer, heart disease, and other bad health outcomes, but the authors say that overall the evidence is weak and that there's not much certainty that meat is really the culprit when other dietary or lifestyle factors could be at play. I smoke three packs of cigarettes a day. But I cut out the meat. Aaron E. Carroll is a professor of pediatrics at the Indiana University School of Medicine. Although he wasn't involved in the research, he wrote an editorial for the journal that summarized all these findings. Now, he has since commented on the fierce debate that now rages between scientists, nutritionists, and environmentalists all about the findings. And Mr. Carroll writes... Should recommendations be more concerned with populations or individuals? How much risk should there be to the matter? Should personal preferences be considered? What should we say in the face of less than optimal evidence? Nothing? Play it safe? Unfortunately, too many of these arguments on meat consumption devolve into tribal sides. And with that, I bring in my tribal sides on the program today. My producer is Jackie. She's with us. Operating the board is Rob. They are both... Are you both vegans? Yeah. Correct. What do you think of this study? Will it convince you to get some sausages? (laughs) (laughs) Never. Here's uh, two things. I have two arguments for this. One, uh, any of those studies about foods are, are usually bogus. I pulled up... Two con- uh, contrasting ones. We all know the uh, the red wine dispute, uh, whether or not that's healthy for you. There's one study I have that links it to uh, smoking 10 cigarettes, uh, drinking a bottle of red wine, another one that says red wine can reduce Alzheimer's. Those are two different studies. I also found a study that says eating pizza uh, may prevent illness.
illness and death if the pizza is made and okay. eaten in Italy. All right. Okay, All so right. studies but aren't great. So- yeah, okay, wait a minute. Let's just get, consider the sources here. These, This has been vetted. This is a big deal. These are actual... Science. The okay, this the pizza study won a uh, right. won an, uh, an award, a Nobel Prize. Was it thirty minutes late? Sorry, <laughs> an improbable research. Oh, do we know though? Uh, these are legit scientists. Yes. Yeah. And they're not backed by this the is, meat industry. No. This okay. Is, this is the real deal, and you you know it's the real deal because of the level of consternation and discussion amongst the high level highest level of scientists in the United States around the world because of this study. Okay, but I have a, a second argument. Okay, go. Um, a lot of people aren't vegan or vegetarian just because eating red meat is is isn't healthy. They're vegan or vegetarian because of uh, compassion, because they don't uh, believe in the treatment that we have, and animals aren't here as a property for humans, uh, and uh, also for the environmental impacts. That's another huge one. Uh, it's been proven by scientists uh, that uh, the beef industry is one of the worst uh, factors in climate change. Well, right? I, w- I will second that, and Mr. Carroll, who I had just quoted goes on in his statements to say that perhaps the thing to do is to not concentrate on whether or not there are discernible health impacts, but there are certainly discernible impacts on the environment from methane Mm -hmm. and from mass beef consumption, animal consumption. So truly, there is an environmental impact. There's no question about it, and maybe that's where we need to concentrate Rob, are you saving the planet or saving your liver? What are you up to? Uh, Originally, I was saving my um, colon. Yeah. I don't want to go there. I know. I know you don't want to go there. But you'll notice that carnivores have very small intestinal tracts. As humans, we don't. I don't want to know (laughs) why you know that. That's weird. Because when you're vegan, you get attacked for being vegan, and you have to know the facts to back it up. (laughs) Exactly. Alan always giving me the stink eye. All right, you poor put-upon vegans. Thank you so much. We're healthier. Not according to the science, you're not. Welcome back to the program. The march towards impeaching the U.S. president continues, even as he rages against the probe and those behind it. On a day full of dizzying developments, the president said he wants to know the identity of the whistleblower that prompted the probe and suggested House Intelligence Chairman Adam Schiff be tried for treason. This whole thing is a disgrace. While the president was largely alone in defending himself, officials say top White House aides will give him options this week for an impeachment response operation. Even with Congress out for the Jewish holidays, Democrats continue their own actions. Yesterday, subpoenaing Trump personal lawyer Rudy Giuliani. Sagar Magani, Washington. I can't wait to watch Giuliani testify. That is going to be some entertainment when that happens. And so keeping our eye on that impeachment deal. And, of course, keep in mind that coming up we have a skill-testing question about... China! And if you answer it correctly, you can win yourself four tickets to go see the RV show. I don't know how those things line up exactly. You can't exactly take an RV to China, but nevertheless, the U.S. government has also now charged an American citizen living in California with acting as a spy for China. 
Pierre Thomas reports the man is accused of taking classified information to the People's Republic of China. An American citizen is in custody, accused of being a covert agent for the Chinese. The FBI says 56-year-old Edward Pong, a naturalized U.S. citizen living in California, has been using secret dead drop locations to collect classified national security information for delivery to his bosses in Beijing. Meanwhile, in Hong Kong, Hong Kong police have shot an 18-year-old protester in the chest at close range as anti-government demonstrations spread across the semi-autonomous Chinese territory. Police say the officer fired a single pistol shot as protesters swarmed toward him. No update at this point on the teenager's condition. We're going to keep on top of that. Protesters and riot police fighting fierce battles in multiple locations in that city. Many protesters determined to spoil today's anniversary of communist rule. Ian Pinnell reports that pro-democracy protesters are venting their anger at China's central government, which they say is slowly and surely chipping away at the freedoms of Hong Kong. All of this comes on the 70th anniversary of the founding of the People's Republic of China. We see massive celebrations going on in Beijing, the largest ever military parade, 15,000 soldiers on Tiananmen Square. We've seen tanks, fighter jets. We've also seen some missiles which apparently can avoid U.S. defenses. President Xi wanted this to be a showcase for Chinese power. The protesters here wanted you to see a very different side of China, and in that they've succeeded. It was October 1st, 1949, that Mao Zedong, or Chairman Mao, announced the formation of the People's Republic of China after communists had won a long and protracted civil war. President Xi Jinping, who is now president for life, said, quote, no force could shake China as he oversaw that huge military parade in Tiananmen Square underneath the giant portrait of Mao. And the nation's newest military technology, as you heard, was on display. Tanks, helicopters, even DF-41. These new intercontinental ballistic missiles were spotted. And standing in the exact spot where Mao declared the foundation of the People's Republic just 70 years ago now, Xi Jinping was the f- among the only ones, in fact, the only one on that raised dais, wearing a Mao-like suit. And that was no mistake, because... She has made it absolutely no secret of his desire to evoke memories of the country's revolutionary founding father. China is a deeply oppressive country that many critics say is turning back progress on global human rights. It has been widely criticized for its lack of democracy, suppression of rights, or any sign of dissent, and an unfair justice system that has, believe it or not, a 99% conviction rate. The pageantry of this 70th anniversary reveals how thoroughly now the party has rewritten China's past to reflect reflect Mr. Xi's turn to communist traditionalism. He offers to China and to the world an unabashedly triumphant vision of China's past and its future. There is no mention, for example, of the Great Leap Forward, Mao's forced collectivization of farms that resulted in mass starvation. Tens of millions, the exact numbers still have not been decided upon, still up for debate, but tens of millions died in the 50s and 60s because of engineered starvation 
because of the policies of Mao Zedong. Meanwhile, here in Toronto, John Tory says he did not attend a Chinese flag-raising ceremony at City Hall yesterday because of, quote-unquote, ongoing issues between Canada and China. Now, the city provides a space for all countries recognized by the Canadian government to raise their flag on their national day. So that's just, it's just what happens. And there was a group of protesters there at Nathan Phillips Square protesting the national holiday, some of them holding up signs of pictures of Michael Kovrig and Michael Spavar, two Canadians who are currently being detained in China. I don't think it's right because they detained our two Michaels in China right now. Now, there were three seats set out for council members. Of course, we mentioned that the mayor was not there. Denzel Min and Wong, there was a chair reserved for him, for him. He did not show. But Councillor Jim Karagenis was there. He said he was there to represent his constituents, and here's what he had to say. The fact that uh, a couple of Canadians have been detained, I've been very vocal with the uh, Chinese Consul General. I've let them know my points of view. Unfortunately, there's an elephant in the room, and the elephant in the room is the United States. Now, Cynthia Lai is a councillor as well for Toronto, and she actually sat right next to the Chinese Council General at the event yesterday. Did the councillor take the opportunity to raise the plight of our Canadian citizens being held and detained in China? Well, in official ceremony like this, we just uh, officiate, and I, don't, I didn't have a chance to speak to the Council General. In Canada... If you detain and arrest our citizens overseas, I tell you what, we will not watch when you raise your flag at our city hall. Could there be an any more Canadian response to, the, to this than that? It's just in. President Trump has now congratulated the People's Republic of China on its anniversary in sharp contrast from several Republican lawmakers who have decried the legacy of the country's communist rule, which brings us to our skill testing question. And if you get this one right, you can get a family pass to the Toronto RV show, which is about to begin and it goes at the Toronto Congress Centre from October 18th to the 20th. You can go all weekend, I suppose. Maybe you go on the 20th. You go to the RV show with your family, and then on the 21st you vote. That's how that works. You go, you get yourself an RV, then you vote for your choice in our election, and the way you get that done is you answer the following skill testing question. What anniversary is being celebrated Today, China. What anniversary is China celebrating today? Please give us a call, Rob. Tell them how they contact you us. You can call us at eight seven zero sixty four hundred or star six forty on cell and talk to Jackie. And talk to Jackie, who will tell you all about whether you are right or not. China. Okay, this week, Juul Labs, the San Francisco-based company that controls about 70% of the vaping market, announced it would replace its CEO. It would no longer run TV, print, or digital advertisements for its e-cigarettes. However, that does not apply to Canada. 
The company, however, has also promised not to lobby against a proposed U.S. ban on flavors, and Washington State now joining a number of other states banning the sale of flavored vaping products amid concern over this mysterious lung illness that has sickened hundreds of people and killed about a dozen across the country. Now, health concerns here in Canada have now led to a lawsuit in this country being filed against Juul. Morgan Campbell is a global news reporter working on this story. Hi, Morgan. Hey, Alan. Thanks for having me. Where has this been filed? So it's been filed in B.C. by two teens who uh, alleged they were 18 years old when they started using Juul products. And according to their family doctors, they've developed uh, shortness of breath, um, those types of health-related issues, which the doctor is suggesting is connected uh, directly to vaping. It seems that uh, all vaping companies are beginning to face this kind of action, but what kind of significance does a lawsuit like this have for Juul in Canada? Well, I mean, it, it, other than financial ramifications, I mean, it could change, you know, the way that uh, those products are sold. I mean, just walk into any convenience store and along with, you know, the candy and the gum, you see these beautiful posters for vaping. And, you know, it looks very attractive. I mean, grape and mango. I mean, these these tastes and these flavors, um, you know, there's a suggestion in this lawsuit are aimed particularly at teens in an effort to gain lifelong customers. Um, so, I mean, cigarettes aren't on display, but uh, but vaping and, and those types of products are. Yeah, I saw a billboard just yesterday on my drive home that was advertising a new vape product, the next generation of vapes, and it's a circular one, and it's cool-looking, and it looks like it might have been made by Apple. Meanwhile... You know, yeah, go ahead. It's funny you mentioned that, Alan, because I, I spoke with an expert based out of uh, the University of Waterloo earlier today, and uh, he told me that's exactly what these companies are doing, is they're making these, like, really techy, you know, neat-looking vape uh, products, uh, you know, that that you inhale with that, yeah, it looks like it's something, you know, right out of the latest, it looks like the latest, like, tech gadget. It looks cool, right? So you got to think about about the market, too. These kids, they're going into school, and, you know, the, it's like having the newest iPhone. Absolutely. And if it isn't the flavors that appeal to the kids, then perhaps it's the tech aspect of it. In this province, the health department, or rather the Ministry of Health, has said it will collect more information, but says that there is not enough evidence yet to move with a full ban on flavored vapes. Nor is there enough evidence to do the things that many have called for, which is to hide these things away, much like we do tobacco products. Has there been any response from Juul yet? You know what? I'm still patiently waiting. Um, in some of the other articles that um, I read today, um, you know, the company said that, you know, the matter is before the court, so it would be inappropriate to com- comment. Um, I would suggest that's likely the response Global News will be getting. But was, what was interesting while I was kind of digging into this, Alan, there's actually a class action lawsuit being formed out of Quebec right now aimed at Juul, um, the same types of allegations. And right now they're trying to, to get people to sign on to the class action lawsuit. Um, it's a consumer lawsuit. Um, so this is definitely something that um, is going to remain in the forefront um, for the foreseeable future.
Morgan Campbell is a global news reporter and is working on this development on a lawsuit against Juul and the ongoing concern about the health impacts of vaping. And you can see her story tonight on Global News at 5.30 and 6. Morgan, thanks again for being on the program. Thanks for having me, Alan. Now moving to the third in a four-part series about the transition between high school and the real world. It's this ongoing series we've been talking quite a bit about on the program, and that is failure to launch. And if you are a parent, especially if you are a parent of a youngster who might be in high school, my hand goes up, you begin to wonder about these things. You wonder about whether or not your child will be able to make that move from high school successfully to post-secondary. It is a difficult time. It is expensive. There are many decisions to be made, and many of them young people are simply not prepared for, especially when it comes to choosing the right kind of post-secondary. About 14% of first-year students across this country dropped out of their university programs. That's according to a 2011 Youth and Transition Survey from Stats Canada. When accounting for all undergraduate students, that number goes up to 16%. That's 16% of first-year students dropping out. Now, students drop out for a variety of reasons that include academic pressure, trouble meeting deadlines, choosing the wrong program, and of course, for many, the reality is cost. Megan Ray is a Global News national online journalist who has worked on this ongoing series, which you can read right now on globalnews.ca. Megan, thank you so much for being in the studio. Thanks so much for having me. What did you find about the perils of choosing the wrong path in post-secondary? Yeah, so it seems like there is this stigma between, uh, you know, with choosing college over university. A lot of the young students who are in transition right now that we were speaking to mentioned that they felt if they chose college, if they wanted that hands-on learning experience, that they would be seen as less smart as someone who was going to university. Even though the research shows that your earning potential, especially with a degree from a college, a, a degree-granting college, and there's a number of those, that that you earn more faster than going, you know, get a BA in humanities. Yeah, absolutely. That's definitely true because when you're looking at um, going to college, there's a more direct entry point into the job market. So whereas with university, it's typically a four-year undergraduate degree and it's a little more, um, you know, it's not as uh, specific. And, And what does the research show about how many students, do we know how many students just say, look, this is just not the thing I, I wanted. I got to get out of this and start again. Yeah, um, so there's actually um, a shockingly small amount of research um, on Canadian institutions, but there was um, one 2008 study um, by Toronto Education Policy and Research Association called the Canadian Education uh, Project. So they found that 38% of college and university students in Canada drop out or change majors over their post-secondary career. And there's actually stigma um, attached to changing you know, changing your mind. Because, you know, you have to disappoint your parents. I mean, maybe they're financing you, and now you actually have to admit to your friends, everybody, well, I made, made a mistake here. Yeah, exactly. And it seems like, you know, parents are saying, if had I, you know, made this decision back then, I would have, you know, maybe had a different trajectory. So they want to protect their kids. 
But it's important for, you know, students to kind of learn that on their own. Megan Ray is a global news national online journalist, and you can read her work on failure to, failure to launch. It's online now at globalnews.ca. Thank you so much. Thanks so much. Before we run out of time, your answer to your skill testing question, ladies and gentlemen. What anniversary is being celebrated today? Today marks the 70th anniversary of the founding of the People's Republic of China. You don't have to say it like that.